Today's sermon passage is Revelation 5. You can find that in your Blue Pew Bible on page 1030. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and in the, among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Uh, I've had such a wonderful time this weekend with so many of you brothers, especially, at the, at the men's retreat, and I'm so glad to be here serving you guys this morning. I, a number of you remind me, I, I, I preached here some six years ago. Six years ago, it's hard to believe that was six years ago, and I haven't been back since. Uh, because we got going after that in Bible study and church, and they have a thing about me being there on Sunday mornings at our church, and also because Mike hasn't invited me back. But I'm really glad to be back this morning and to serve you guys. I, I love your church, and I especially mean by that, I, I love your, your pastors, uh, Mike and, and Jonesy and Seth um, have become really great friends, and I've told my wife behind their backs one of my favorite things about pastoring now five years in, 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 in this area, is the friendship and the counsel and the genuine support that we've steadily received from them throughout. So I'm glad to be here with you all this morning. I usually, I preach most weeks in our church, and I, I usually begin my sermons with an introduction. Uh, 
So I usually take something from, from, from history or from literature or from entertainment or from just common everyday scenes of life and borrow from that. And I, and I don't do that really to, to entertain some. I actually remember as a, as a kid, the pastor who I primarily sat under, he would occasionally begin his sermons with a joke. And I didn't really pay that much attention at the time to the sermons, but I eventually connected in my mind, oh, the joke has nothing to do with the sermon. He was just warming up the audience. That's not why I do introductions. I'm not trying to warm up the audience. I'm trying to, I'm trying to show you from something familiar to you why this matters, why you've got to hear what God's word has for you this morning, why this is abundantly relevant to your life. Sometimes I feel really good about my introductions. Uh, sometimes I feel abundantly aware that I've wasted everybody's time. But I get back after the next week and try again. I have no introduction for you this morning. That was sort of an introduction. (laughs) Because the scene before us in Revelation 5, which was just read for us, felt too holy for analogy. The sights and sounds that John hears here in Revelation 5 stand so far above and beyond Whatever thing I could place in living color to sort of connect you with that, that it felt like cheapening what God's word actually has for us here. The book of Revelation, if you're, if you're not there in your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to Revelation 5. The book of Revelation is a special type of, of book in the Bible called an apocalyptic book. Actually, the word revelation in Greek is apocalypsis. And what that means is a revealing or, or an unveiling. So, so I think about a book like Revelation or Daniel's another book like that in the Bible. God, through an through a, through a inspired writer of the scripture, is pulling back the curtain, if you will, and revealing to us Real things that are actually happening behind the scenes in this world, invisible realities, which are actually the forces controlling and at play in the world. And it does this through symbols so often and even wild and bizarre images. And, and, and so you meet you know, a character with seven heads. And that doesn't mean there's really a, a, a character out there somewhere with seven heads. But those symbols represent real things. And to know what those real things mean, you have to pay attention to the context. And that means you have to pay attention to the rest of the book of Revelation. And a lot of times, that means you have to pay attention to the rest of the Bible and especially the Old Testament. Because so many of these wild, bizarre images in Revelation, John is seeing things that are just being borrowed from and picked up from Genesis. In Revelation chapter 4... The chapter before ours this morning, John the Apostle, the beloved friend of Jesus, sees, he's he's transported by a vision in the Holy Spirit, and he sees in chapter 4 a door cracked open in heaven, and a voice calls out to him, and the voice comes in a trumpet, he says. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. John says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which 
I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. <laughs> Just imagine. Come up here. And so John walks in or up by the spirit and realizes as he surveys the scene that he's inside of a throne room. The throne room is, is vast and it might help you. I hope you'll turn your imagine, imagination on now. It might help you to, to think of this room like a room of concentric circles. So, so big circles and then ever decreasing inside circles within the larger circle. At the edge of the room, so in the outermost circle, there are 24 elders, John says. There's great mystery here, but it seems that the 24 elders represent all the people of God. So John, in his letter, speaks of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's God's people in the Old Testament. And then he speaks, in the same letter, of the 12 apostles, representing God's people in the New Testament. So put them together, you have 24. The 24 elders here seem to represent all the people of God across the ages. Further into the room, one circle in, closer to the center now, there are John C's Four living creatures. The four living creatures here are, are clearly angels and seem very closely related to other creatures who we meet earlier in the Bible in places like Ezekiel or even a famous scene like Isaiah chapter 6. And maybe most notably, these living creatures seem very closely related to that great cherubim who was placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned and were barred from the presence of God and from the, the paradise of Eden by that cherubim standing there watching. Before the four living creatures, still closer now to the center, John sees a vast expanse. So this is a really big circle. John describes it in chapter 4, verse 6, as a sea of glass like crystal. And then at the very center, in the innermost part of this room, John sees a throne where God himself is seated and from where God rules the world. John walks through this open door and he finds in this room a worship service is happening. He walks in, like right now, somebody walks in a little late and finds us singing or me preaching. In fact, what John sees there is very much like what we're doing now. In fact, this right here, what we're doing now is, is just a type, is just a, is just a representation, a rehearsal of that ultimate worship service to come. In chapter 5, our chapter this morning, John is still inside this throne room, which he entered in chapter 4 still watching this worship service unfold, and he looks three times. He looks and he sees, in our chapter, three things. First, in verse 1, he sees a scroll. Second, in verse 6, he sees a lamb. And finally, in verse 11, he looks and he sees a choir. 
So if you're a, a note taker and you want to follow along this chapter and my thoughts, those are the three scenes we're going to look at together, all in part of one scene. Three things John sees. I saw first a scroll. I saw second a lamb. I saw third, John says, a choir. So first, I saw a scroll. Verses 1 through 4. John's eyes, and you can understand why, his eyes first, I mean, think about all the options here and all the things he sees. His eyes first lock in on that throne itself. He goes straight to the center of the room with his gaze. John doesn't give much detail on the throne here in chapter 5, but back in chapter 4, he, he did his best to describe it. Look at chapter 4, verse 3, if you want to look back one chapter. John says, And he who sat there on that throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Then one verse later, he says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So John says, John sees the throne. He locks in on the throne in chapter 4, and he says, it looked, like, it looked like precious jewels, and it sounded like a thunderstorm. And that's the best he could do. Now back in chapter 5, John zeroes in on the right hand of him who is seated upon that throne at the center of the room. All throughout the Bible, the right hand of God represents his power, his rule. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy, Moses sang in Exodus 15, 6. John sees in the right hand of him who is seated upon this throne, he sees a scroll. And we want to really pay attention to the details of this scroll because this is the first thing John sees and pauses on. And so he wants us to see this scroll. Notice first it has writing in verse 1 of chapter 5. The scroll has writing on front and back. It's highly unusual for ancient scrolls to have writing inside and outside and all over them. And the point of the image here, this strange image here, seems to be that the information contained in this scroll is exhaustive. It explains everything. There's no information missing from this scroll at all, period. Notice John sees further in verse 1, this scroll was sealed with seven seals. So ancient scrolls, we don't really use scrolls anymore. I don't use scrolls anymore. Ancient scrolls were rolled up once they were completed. And really important letters were sealed with a clump of wax, which would contain the author's seal. Now, that's not, that's not how you and I, peasants like us, send mail around. But kings and dignitaries, when they sent their letters, they, they, they sealed them with wax. The seal is what proved who actually wrote the letter and an unbroken, you get the mail and you have it rolled up and it's sealed. An unbroken seal proves that the contents of this letter have not been tampered with. This is actually from who it says it's from. It's what he actually said. Now, a brief word about numbers in Revelation. People go bananas with numbers in Revelation and sometimes in, in very unhelpful ways. But I want to point out a couple of things here which will be relevant throughout this sermon and throughout this scene in John's Revelation. Numbers are highly symbolic in Revelation. 
So, so think of uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the, and the 144,000 who will I- inherit heaven. That, that, that's, that's a misunderstanding of the nature of symbols and revelation. It, it, that represents something. It's not an exact number. Also, that's a really small number if you go throughout the course of time. Numbers are symbolic, but they're, again, they're loaded with meaning supplied by the rest of the book and supplied often by the rest of the Bible. So they do mean something, and you can actually know their meaning. John wants you to know their meaning. You've just got to know the context. A few numbers in particular are really important and repeated throughout the book constantly, and none more so than the numbers seven and four. The number seven is the number of completion, of wholeness. From Genesis actually on, you remember God created the earth and designed everything in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. Why did he rest? Because it was complete, it was whole, it was perfect. And that number takes on a symbolic nature and reverberates throughout the rest of the Bible, even to the very last book in John. Seven is the number of wholeness or of completion. Four, on the other hand, in Revelation, clearly represents the entire earth. Or you can think of it as the four corners of the earth. You can see that. I'm not going to read you the passages, but you can see that if you want to check on your own. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, where four represents north, south, east, west, the, the four, all the earth. So seven is the number of completion or wholeness. Four is the number representing all the earth. That this scroll has seven seals, you can probably guess, imagine how this works. It means what? It it means that this scroll is completely sealed. In other words, there's there's, there's no code or no secret key to crack this scroll. There's no lock to pick. There's no secret password. You have to be able to open all seven seals to open this locked and completely locked scroll. So what's in the scroll? Well, John doesn't outright tell us here in the chapter the contents of the scroll, but I think if you, as you read his book, it actually becomes pretty clear what this scroll is. In chapter 4, verse 1, John is invited up into the throne room to see, he says, things to come. In the chapters following our chapters, 6 and 7 and beyond, the seals, these seals are progressively broken, and as they're broken, God's judgments are released. In Daniel chapter 7, in the Old Testament, which is very much a parallel to this passage this morning, there's also there a vision of a throne room, and there a book is open, and there we actually read the book is called the book of judgments. So what is this scroll? I'm going to call it the book of history because it contains all of God's words, every last one about human history, past, present, and yes, the future. And it doesn't just have words on a page about history. It unveils all of God's judgments and all of God's salvation. And this is so significant. This is not just contents and footnotes. This is revelation, baby. These words opening up this book is not just about secret information being released. To open up this book in revelation is to unleash its contents. If if I could say that in a different way, if this book that John's, if this scroll is not open, then all the things in the book do not come true. 
At this point, a great angel appears on the scene, a heavenly messenger or spokesperson who makes a special announcement in the form of a question. Look at verse 2. The angel asks, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? The angel makes this announcement so loudly that everybody in all of heaven hears it. And so does everybody notice on the earth, and so does everybody under the earth. All of creation is put on notice here. A search is begun. Now, if I could invite you to allow a pause in verse 2, because we don't, we don't exactly know what this looked like with respect to time. You and I read this, we read it, we just imagine all this happening all at once and 15 seconds in total, because that's how long it takes to read these verses or even this chapter. But remember, John, John's just trying to keep up with the dizzying lights and sounds that he's seeing and which he barely knows how to describe. He's doing the best he can with the help of the Spirit. And what's happening in verse 2 is very much like a search party being sent out from heaven. So the, the call goes forth from heaven, and, and for minutes or days or months or years or all in an instant, we don't know, but for a time, every creature in all of creation is welcomed by the angel, by heaven, to offer themselves as the candidate to open this scroll. Just imagine the anticipation here. Let all, of you, let all of you who think you're worthy, men, women, any of you, come forth. Let the great men of renown present themselves to see if they can break this scroll in its seven seals. Anticipation is through the roof. And none come forward. Nobody is found. The call from the mighty angel is returned with silence. No kings, no warriors from the earth answer the call. Not even in heaven, John says in verse 3. Not even from heaven does anybody come forth. That, that's alarming. What? None of the angels can break these seals. The living creatures, glorious, dangerous as they are, cannot break these seals. Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, Solomon, if he's up there, cannot break these seals. And Adam, God's prince from so long ago, God's first appointed ruler of the earth, the man who should have ruled history for God and under God and by God's pattern, where is Adam? And you, no offense, but to state the obvious, not you either. None of us go forth. We as Christians, regularly, you as a church regularly confess your sins. You know why you regularly confess your sins. And that's the right thing to do. And the Bible commands you even to regularly confess your sins. Do you know why you do that? Because you're part of creation silence here too. And so am I. None is worthy to open these scrolls. Nobody can open this book. The throne itself is silent. Is God defeated? Is God dead? John, upon hearing and realizing the silence, is, look at verse 4, he's overcome by horror. And he just starts uncontrollably weeping, loudly, we read. Now, I used to read this 
And I, I read this, you know, as a, as a young Christian, and I thought, man, I, you know, I, I, some, if I'm in the mood, I like to read, but that, no book is that good. Like, I don't, I don't care. It's, I'd like to know what's in the scroll, but what, what's going on, John? You must just be so overwhelmed. You don't know what to do, and your emotions just became unhinged. But remember what this book is. This is the book of history. This is the book of all God's promises and plans. If this book is not opened, well, imagine an eternity where North Korea and Afghanistan's rulers go on unchallenged forever. Imagine an eternity where racists or bullies just keep on laughing forever. Imagine an eternity where Grown-ups who abuse little children go on unpunished forever. Imagine an eternity where your and my sins just, just are never dealt with and live on within us forever. Imagine an eternity where nothing is ever made new or right, where everything sad never comes untrue, and where everything remains just as broken as it presently is. If this book is not open, the world, the devil, the flesh, and the devil win. John's not weeping here because he's emotionally unhinged, his five senses are overwhelmed. John's weeping because he's the only sane one of us who has understood what it means for this book to remain shut. And with these words, writes one author, John sets the scene for one of the greatest moments in all of known literature. Because at that moment, in John's despair, a voice calls out from the throne room. Number two, I saw a lamb. Verses five through seven. Look at verse five. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Two of the towering images throughout the Old Testament for the Messiah, that's the one promised all the way back beginning in Genesis 3, the one who would come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent and deal with evil and deal with sin and make everything right and new again. Two of the twin towering images of that one to come, promises from Genesis 3 on, are first the Lion of Judah. That, that comes first in Genesis 49 where we read, uh, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, this is, this is Jacob's parting blessing to each of his sons. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. So from Jacob's fourth son, Judah would come a conquering king. All peoples will bow down to him and obey him one day. That's the Lion of Judah. The second towering image of the coming Messiah across the pages of the Old Testament is the Root of David. This is from Isaiah 11, which was read for us earlier in the service where we read, 
there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's, Jesse's David's dad. And from Jesse, from David, a, a stump, a shoot, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. I'm not going to read the passage again, but the passage goes on to talk about this one, this, this, this root of David, will be filled and guided by the Spirit. This one will judge with righteousness. After he judges, when he gains the throne, wolf shall lie down and play with lamb, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. From David, a descendant of Judah, so the lion of Judah, the root of David, would come a king who would rule with wisdom and might, and he too will destroy his enemies, and he'll make everything new, and he'll make everything right. Chapter 5, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He is the one, the elder announces, and he's, he's the only one, and he's here, and the elder says he's conquered. Just earlier in the book, seven letters to seven churches, you remember earlier in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, John had given them, they're all slightly different messages, but they all have one central chorus, same message in each of the letters to each of the churches. See if you can catch it. Chapter 2, verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will give, I will grant to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 11, to the one who conquers, I will grant to not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 3, verse 5, to the one who conquers, I will clothe in white garments and put his name in the book of life. Chapter 3, verse 21, one more time, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my Throne. Revelation's message to the church is you must conquer. The, the, the word is Nike. Just do it, baby. You must conquer. And the elders' announcement to John here, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so the elder says, he can break it. In that moment, John, surely looking in the direction of the elder telling him about the lion who has conquered, hears a rustling past the four living creatures and in the direction of the throne. And so John turns and he looks into that sacred space in the very center of this room occupied by the throne where he looked before in chapter 4, and seeing dazzling jewels and a rainbow, and he sees a lamb who has somehow, without John noticing it, made it past the four living creatures and into the Holy of Holies, into the throne room itself. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. How did he get there? The second thing John sees in our passage and, and stares at, inviting us to stare at with him, is the lamb. Throughout Revelation, there's this fascinating pattern where John hears something, and he describes what he hears, and then he's told to look at it, and he looks, and he sees something different. It, it can almost feel contradictory, but it's actually how Re Revelation gets its message ac across. 
John hears something, a message, and what he sees describes and defines further. It interprets what he hears for him. It's, it's, it's actually beautiful. Here John hears of a lion notice. I don't know what he heard. Did the lion roar? Did the, was, was, there, was there growling? And turning to look, John sees a lamb. The lion is the lamb. What does that mean? The conquering king of Judah is the suffering servant of Isaiah. It means that God's enemies have been defeated by a cross. It means that God has defeated death by death. It means that we, you and I, will conquer Nike by our suffering and through our weakness. The lion is the lamb. Keep staring at the lamb, verse 6. I want, you to, I want you to behold the bizarre spectacle of the lamb here. Look at verse 6. Notice first, the lamb is standing, John says, as though it had been slain. I wonder if you've pondered how awkward that image is. Slain means slaughtered. It doesn't just mean dead. It means killed by violence. It, 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 it means a bloody carcass. It means roadkill. And the last thing a slain thing would ever do is to stand. It's a, it's a bizarre oxymoronic image here. It's an image of death and resurrection. Notice the lamb has, keep staring, the lamb has seven horns. Horns throughout the Bible are, they always represent power and political might. Seven is the number of completion. So the lamb has complete power, complete rule. The lamb also has, we read, John sees seven eyes. Eyes represent, throughout the Bible, wisdom and knowledge. Seven is the number of completion, so he has complete wisdom. The seven spirits here are the one spirit completely. The lamb is filled, in other words, entirely with the spirit of God, Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.24. Now John's eyes fixed upon the spectacle of the slain lamb, yours, mine as well, somehow standing up, the lamb moves. And it moves, watch this, in a direction Neither John, nor the angels, nor the 24 elders, nor the living creatures, nor anybody else in all the universe has ever seen anybody move. The lamb approaches the throne. In the Bible, the very worst idea you could possibly ever have is to approach God's holy places without permission. Do you remember Uzzah? <laughs> tried, to, tried to stop the ark from falling to the ground. He was struck dead. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu? Uh, approaching the, 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 the temple, the altar, unlawfully without God's permission, also struck dead. The high priest alone was allowed in the Old Testament to enter the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the temple. And according to one Jewish temple, he would, uh, one Jewish tradition, he would enter with a rope tied around his foot. Why? So that his priest friends could drag his dead carcass out if he slipped up and did anything wrong. That's how holy the presence of God is. You do not tread upon the holy without permission. That was true even with tents and tabernacles. How much true of this, the reality, the heavenly throne room, brothers and sisters, the tabernacles and temples were 
mere replicas and copies and shadows of the heavenly realities. Of this, Hebrews 8, 5 says, this is the real thing. No one dares approach this throne. Verse 7, the lamb approaches the throne. And coming to the holy of holies, the lamb reaches out to the right hand, that right hand of him who is seated upon the throne and takes from it the scroll. The Lamb of God has now taken control of all human history. He's taken all power of all human history. Three, I saw a choir. Verses 8 through 14. You just have to try to imagine the suspense in that moment. Just try to put yourself in poor John's shoes, crying, weeping loudly, dizzied, hopeful, confused, terrified more than anything else. And then the lamb approaches the throne and reaches for the scroll and, and takes the scroll. And then John hears a loud bang upon the surface, echoing throughout the entire room as bodies all in once hit the floor. Not the lambs, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, everybody in the room, everybody else outside of the throne at the center falls to the floor, bowing before the lamb, and the mighty warrior cherubim, unpassed by any mere mortal, they all transform in an instant into a choir. Verse 9, and they sing a new song. In the Old Testament, whenever the people of God were were delivered by God. Think about the Exodus. They always sang a new song after God's victory. Here, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They sing a new song, notice here. Uh, then I looked and I heard, they continue, uh, Paul, uh, John says, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb. They sing here notice of our ransom. They sing of our ransom. We were slaves. We were enslaved in our sins, and no one could pay our ransom to set us free. No money could pay the ransom. None of us, not one of us, had the right currency. Only Jesus, by his blood, could pay that ransom. Listen, if you're here this morning, and you're not yet a believer in Christ, you're unsure, you're unresistant, you've hesitated to believe in this, you can try for the rest of your life, so many people do, to pay this ransom yourself. You owe God. We all do. Our sins are against God, the holy judge and creator of the universe. You owe him. You are indebted to him. And you can try, if you want, for the rest of your life to pay that back. By, you can grind your hands and your knees into the ground with good works. You can compare yourself all day long to those around. I'm not as bad as those people. If those people fail, you can always compare yourself to Hitler. I'm not as bad as Hitler was. Friend, you don't have the currency. None of us do. Only Jesus has the currency. That's the point of the Bible. That's the point of the cross. Jesus had to pay it all. All you have to do is leave all of your everything behind. Empty your hands of everything you thought you could bring to God to earn your way to God and only take Christ. That's what the Bible calls faith. Believe. Trust in Christ. He will pay your ransom. 
They sing of our ransom, and they sing, notice secondly, of our reign. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Last year, Queen Elizabeth died. I read an amazing story about her. Maybe you read it too. When UK Parliament is in session, the Queen visits, Jonesy, correct us if we're wrong here, wearing her crown, royal robe. She makes a royal procession down a hallway, lined with her guards. Amazing England. We don't do anything like this in America. As she proceeds, the guards strike the wall with their swords, causing sparks to fly. At the end of the hallway is the House of Lords, where the Queen takes her seat upon the throne. It's all glorious. Well, in her latter years, I read in the story, when it got too difficult due to old age for her to make that journey, rather than ascending the stairs to that royal hallway, she'd take an elevator. Even the queen takes an elevator. And the first year they tried this, the elevator operator pushed the wrong button, and instead of the floor for parliament, he pushed the button for the maintenance floor. <laughs> so the elevator doors open, and... Alice, the maintenance lady, walks into the elevator with her head down, not paying attention, pushing her cleaning cart. The door closes. She looks up and she blurts out a profanity as she realizes that she just pinned the Queen of England inside the elevator behind her mop buckets. <laughs> and, and, and as mostly Americans in the room, it would be worth reminding you now that in, in England, they behead people. The awkwardness, the dangerousness was only broken by the queen's laughter. Not only that, the queen insisted that Alice, the maintenance lady, accompany her to the parliament. So when they arrived to the right floor, the elevator's door open, all the queen's guards awaiting with their swords and sparks to fly, out walks Queen Elizabeth in her royal regalia, and at her side, Alice the custodian in her cleaning rags. And the two proceeded together at the queen's invitations down the royal hallway, and once a year, you can look it up. Once a year, for the rest of Alice's life, she was invited to Buckingham Palace for tea with Queen Elizabeth. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that make you love Queen Elizabeth? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, that is the ridiculous true story of the gospel. Jesus has taken you and all of your filthy rags and escorted you and me into the presence of his Father. And by his own blood has purchased our right to stay there. Let us then with confidence approach the throne of grace, Hebrews 4 says. All that Adam lost, Jesus has restored. And we shall reign with him, they sing in heaven. The angels sing here of the reign of the Lamb. And the angels sing here of our reign with him. He has made us worthy by his blood. Three final brief words and I'm done. Concluding words. First, a brief word on that scroll where we all began. The point of the entire book of Revelation is that God is controlling history, turning it here and there and ruling behind the scenes, though it often doesn't look like it, always doing so to accomplish his purposes. It was written, Revelation was written, not to give you a map and a timeline to go crazy with. It was written to churches under persecution and distress, hanging on by a thread to tell them God is ruling. You just see enemies. You just feel Satan's attacks. But look behind the curtains. Remember, it's unveiling. Revelation is saying, let me show you more. Jesus has the scroll. Your life, your church's life, your future, your kids' futures. Jesus has the scroll. And 
Jesus is the Lord of the universe. All things are accomplishing his purposes. Your life is not an accident. Your mistakes are not altering history. The lamb has the scroll. Keep on going and trusting his provinces. Second, a brief word on that lamb. I want to say sort of like, uh, sort of like the narrator at the end of a play where he comes in and sort of cleans everything up and breaks character and, and, and tells you in case you were missing anything, the point of it all. I want to say to the kids in the room or to anybody else who's just confused that the lamb is Jesus. And I want to tell you, all of you, one final thing about the book of Revelation and one more thing about those numbers. Seven is the number of? Four is the number of? All the earth. Let me show you something amazing. The word Christ, Christ, is used seven times in Revelation. The phrase, the testimony of Jesus, is used seven times in Revelation. The name Jesus on its own, just Jesus, is used seven other times in Revelation. And the lamb, who we met this morning, the lamb, 28 times John writes the word lamb. 28, 7 times 4. 7 is the number of completion. 4 is the number of the entire earth. The Lamb reigns over all the earth. Third, one final word on that choir. Their final verse, they sing, verse 12, with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Friends, one, power, two, wealth, three, wisdom, four, might, five, honor, six, glory, seven, blessing. What is that? Sevenfold worth. He's completely worthy. All praise to him is due. One author, quote, readers of this passage who themselves fail to join in with this heavenly host are listening to the text only with their brains and not with the exhilaration intended by John so that his readers are themselves drawn into the heavenly scene as part of the heavenly worship. Worthy is the Lamb. May your church and my church, you and I, join the chorus this morning and for the rest of our lives. Worthy is the Lamb. God, thank you for the gift of your word and thank you for the reign and rule and the redemption of the Lamb who is making all things new, even us. God, I pray that you would draw our hearts now to worship the Lamb more devotedly with our entire lives. Even now, help us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.